Uh, it's funny. Some people do really well with graduate school and I'm just like, this is, this does not work the same way that my brain does at all. Well, I, I personally have a lot of nostalgia. I would totally go back to graduate school. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Just for the, just for the fun of it in American history or something. Huh. What, what subject would you study in American history if you could? Oh, I would study African-American history. That was my, that was my second. When I think back to when I was like thinking of going into graduate school, um, if I didn't do Russian history, I probably would have done African-American history. And in retrospect, I wish I would have done both. I'm actually doing a lot of reading now and, and it, it's both, it's, it's an amazing history. African-American history is, is an amazingly rich history uh, at, by the scholarship, I mean. Um, and and it's, it's also incredibly disturbing uh, in the sense that, so I'm reading a book on Reconstruction right now by Eric Foner. It's like a really popular book, main book on Reconstruction. And it's a, it, it really is disturbing how relevant it is today. Anyways, happy Juneteenth. We are technically recording on Juneteenth holiday. That's right. It is, it is Juneteenth tomorrow, the 19th, mm -hmm. uh, which became a federal holiday yesterday, which is good. I think that means a lot of people get today, Friday, off. It is. It is. Uh, yeah, it is a federal holiday now. Um, so that I think that's, that's good. Uh, you know, these symbolic things, I think, ha have a certain level of importance. I would say about time, but also can we see some like non-symbolic change, some actual systemic change? Yes. Uh, yeah. Can we please <laughs> someday, you know, that's why, that's why it's so shock. That's why reading this book reconstruction is sh so shocking. Um, and, and I have to say too, it, the ebbs and flows of like anytime African-Americans exert their political agency how unbelievably violent the white backlash is. Yeah, I only know about the tip of the iceberg and it's shocking. So what do we have going on this week, this episode this week? Uh, so for listeners that might not know, the SRB podcast is actually based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, and the reason that I'm bringing this up right now is because the theme of today's episode deals with some post-industrial spaces and infrastructure and um, the history of how those post-industrial spaces are used the way they were used, the way they're being used now. Um, and as you might know, Pittsburgh is kind of this quintessential Rust Belt city. Uh, we, we are very much a post-industrial space, and we've got a lot of buildings that are both decaying and some in uh, various stages of revival as well. Yeah, so today is our interviews with uh, Guido Secchi, who studies geography. It's a, based on a photo book that he published on the the company, so the Russian or the Soviet company town Taliadi, uh, which is an auto factory hub. It's an automaker's hub. And it's also, you know, this episode is, is interesting for me. And I would imagine for you too, both of us are neither, we're, we're not natives of Pittsburgh. Uh, and we're both living here in, in a time of revival of the city and redevelopment uh, and in my, in my neighborhood in particular, East Liberty, it's undergoing a renewal and gentrification. And it's interesting to see, to hear about another place like Taliadi, which has a lot of the same, well, I shouldn't say the same features, but, uh, the question is, is what is the legacy of, of 
these cities that were planned and, and created in the you know mid 20th century. Well, I'm excited to listen to the interview. This is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And listeners like you who've joined the SRB Table of Ranks, as always, if you'd like to support the podcast, go to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit the Patreon button and give a modest contra- monthly contribution to become a member of the Table of Ranks and, and help this podcast keep going. Uh, we also like to announce that, uh, of course, I should say thanks for to Amy's help trying to get the social media presence up and running better. Um, we have a couple of new ways that listeners can interact with the podcast. We are now on LinkedIn, Instagram, as well as, as always, on Twitter and Facebook. And if you'd like to send us a tweet or write a comment or even give an audio comment, uh, go to the contact page of the web podcast website or send an email uh, and maybe we'll read some of them or play some of them on the podcast. You guys can connect with the podcast through Facebook and Twitter at Sean's Russia blog, through LinkedIn and Instagram at the SRB podcast, and through the website at srbpodcast.org. So Amy, you want to announce our, the bio of our guest, this week's guest? So Guido Secchi is a researcher and a lecturer at the Department of Human Geography at the University of Latvia. The focus of his research is on post-socialist urban and regional studies. His new book is Tolyadi, Exploring Post-Soviet Spaces, and it's co-authored with Michelle Chera. Um, and this book is published by the Velvet Cell and VAC Foundation. Here is Guido Secchi. Well, Guido, it's really nice to talk to you and talk about this photo book, um, Taliadi, uh, Exploring Post-Soviet Spaces. Um, so to start off the, our conversation, how about you just introduce yourself? Okay. Um, I am a researcher at the Department of Human Geography of the University of Latvia. Um, and my current main uh, research interests are in the domain of post-socialist, post-Soviet in particular, uh, urban and regional studies. What about what about that specifically? Do you do you look at? Uh, well, I've been uh, focusing mostly on topics of uh, uh, social spatial segmentation, segregation, inequality in general from gentrification to public space management to uh, suburbanization dynamics, maintenance uh, of uh, uh, mass housing estates. So uh, issues that are related with to post-socialist transition and which have an, an impact on, uh, on inequality, I would say. So you, you have this, this photo book which has an introductory essay and conclusion that I, I'm assuming you wrote. And, and it's titled Toliadi Exploring Post-Soviet Spaces. So um, how, how did this book come about? 
well, as I mentioned, the Soviet and post-Soviet city is part, an important part of my research interests, but uh, it all actually started from a reflection on visual representation of uh, the um, architecture and the built environment of, uh, uh, we might say, actually existing socialism for for lack of a better word, um, we started um, thinking about this together with Michele, who is my co-author and who is a landscape and urban photographer who has, uh, such as me, a background in urban and regional planning. Um, it was a few years ago and uh, uh, photo books about socialist architecture and built environment were becoming more and more popular. And at the same time, the first critical takes were appearing both in the academic and popular literature. Uh, so the first criticisms about uh, the, the emphasis on ruin, uh, dilapidated infrastructure, ghost towns, and, and so on. Michele, as a landscape photographer, has always been interested in, the, uh, in observing people in space rather than purely looking at infrastructure. So we started noticing, yeah, that uh, uh, first of all, people were often absent or underrepresented in these photo books. And we came to think, what about a photographic project that uh, could focus on the social spatial dialectic, to quote Edward Sawyer. It started from, from here. So in this regard, uh, Togliatti is, uh, uh, in our um, intentions, uh, the first chapter, I may even say an introductory chapter, of a broader project that we hope to develop in the, in the next years. And can you talk a bit about why, why photography was the main medium to, lo to look at Togliatti and, and the, the architecture and this issue of, of space? Photography is a powerful tool, definitely, in terms of, of representation. It's also a risky tool because it, it can be manipulative. And so this was also stimulating in a way. But I'd say we uh, decided to elaborate a photo project uh, basically because it all started, the whole idea started through the observation of visual representation of, uh, of this specific uh, environment. And what bothered you about the visual representation thus far that, that, you know, cause in your introduction, it's, it's also kind of a bit of a meditation on a, an attempt of a corrective. So what, what was some of the things you, you noticed that in your co-author noticed that became problematic that you wanted to comment on? Uh, well, I mean, the first, uh, uh, first of all, I live in, in a post-Soviet city, which is Riga, the capital city of Latvia. And uh, I've been traveling throughout the uh, so-called post-Soviet space. Once again, I'm using terms that could be uh, challenged, but still uh, we understand each other. Um, well, the, in order to find ghost towns and dilapidated architecture and infrastructure, not saying that these things do not exist, but you have to search on purpose for them. Uh, what I see is that, for instance, in the city where I live, according to the last population census, three quarters of the population live in Soviet uh, buildings, mass housing estates mostly. 
um, houses of culture and concert halls, they're all working. So uh, I may say that also through my personal experience, it seemed to me a bit unfair to disconnect this uh, uh, built environment from its social function, past and present. I can summarize like this. This is a bit more than just talking about the absence of people. Disconnecting and decontextualizing uh, can also be achieved through emphasizing decay, uh, degradation, and, and so on. Uh, these are all things that exist, but they are just a part of the whole story. Amelia, you want to jump in? So I really noticed when I was looking through the book, especially at the photographs, um, exactly what you've been saying, that you're looking to place people in these uh, built contexts and these built environments. Um, and if you don't mind, I'd like to just ask you about one photograph in particular. Um, so in the photograph, we kind of see a parking lot on a sunny day. There's a hillside with trees behind it. Um, and in the middle of the picture frame, there are two cars with a group of young people. Some of them are sitting, some of them are standing, and one has brought a folding chair. And I'm wondering if you can give a little bit of context or maybe even the story about this photograph. Uh, well, none of the, of the photographs were actually uh, planned. I mean, we just uh, uh, selected in advance uh, uh, specific locations within the city, which are uh indoor or outdoor locations and uh, uh, some some things just just happened i mean we collected plenty of photo material and then uh we organized it in in a sequence which has different kinds of interconnections uh, uh as for this specific picture uh, it's been taken close to the uh, Volga river embankment where basically people are sunbathing, having uh, just strolls, uh, having barbecues or just resting. So it's uh, it's a bit outside uh, the Auto Zavodsky district where uh, we uh, collected most of the material. Uh, we just went to this embankment uh, um uh, one one specific day for a few hours and uh, we also have uh, beach pictures from there in the end of the book so these were just teenagers that were or were enjoying their <laughs> free time on the <laughs> on the volga river embankment um i want to ask about the the introduction um because first off you 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 begin the introduction with a quote from Hartan Negri's famous book Empire, which is now, you know, twenty years old. Um, and and you you quote actually one of my favorite lines from the book, which is, "We continually find the first world in the third, the third in the first, and the second nowhere at all." Um, why why did you begin with this this quote from Hartan Negri's Empire? I find it extremely concise and poignant. Uh, and I think it summarizes very well uh, the fact that uh, the so-called second world has been neglected like something in between uh, and perhaps too similar to the first 
albeit considered as a sort of distortion, distorted version of the first, to be deemed worthy of being seen through the lens of uh, post-colonial uh, studies, for instance. Um, so, uh, in my opinion, this uh, opened the way for an acceptable form of Second World Orientalism that is widespread. It's a form of Orientalism which is not aimed at a specific culture or ethnic group, but is aimed at an ideological experience. Still, it is, in my opinion, a form of Orientalism, and I think many of these uh, tropes, stereotypes that we often find in, in photo books, and not only, I mean, in, in documentary movies, even in, in non-fiction literature sometimes, uh, I think they descend from this uh, widespread acceptance of this Orientalist uh, approach. Can you give some examples of, of what you mean? Well, uh, conflating different geographical areas, I mean, the fact of mixing in the same book the Soviet Union with Bulgaria, or Albania, or former Yugoslavia. I mean, the impression of an homogeneous monolithic block, basically disconnected from the First and Third World. I mean, antagonistic with regard to the First World and disconnected from the Third. Of course, in the academic, in academic research, uh, there is plenty of work that uh, is being done currently in various domains. Um, history, through history of architecture, anthropology, culturology. Uh, so there is, uh, uh, there are attempts now at uh, telling the history of, uh, of the 20th century socialism, uh, also taking into account the uh, global uh, landscape and uh, post-colonial and anti-colonial struggles and so on. But uh, I think in terms of common sense, um, there is still an excessive uh, use of tropes and stereotypes. So is, is the story that you're, tr you're trying to do with this book is at least rep in through representation to, to, you know, overcome the otherness of the so-called second world? In, in a way, yes. In a way, yes. I mentioned that this is a chapter of a larger project. So uh, we focused on a specific city because we uh, it was, in a way, simpler to introduce this topic. Well, tell us about Toliadi and, and its significance and why that was the city you chose to, to focus on for this book. Uh, well, Toliati is probably the largest uh, planned Soviet city. And uh, it's also uh, perhaps the largest peripheral city in Russia nowadays, in a way, because uh, there are no other cities that size in Russia which are not the, the administrative center of a, of a federal unit, of a, uh, of a region, of an autonomous republic, and so on. So it's a large peripheral city. It's a large peripheral for this city. Um, and uh, uh, as a fully planned settlement, uh, I think it uh, exemplifies uh, rather, rather well um, some specific research issues uh, that we wanted to reflect on. 
that is the specificity of the socialist city of the 20th century and compared to, for instance, the capitalist Western city. Uh, the transformations or preservation of these characteristics after 1991, uh, and also, well, the already mentioned issue of visual representation of this specific landscape. I think uh, uh, Togliatti was a good point to start because of its, uh, uh, of its peculiar history of it being a fully planned settlement with basically no pre-Soviet history or, I mean, little pre-Soviet history. We focused on the on a specific district of Togliatti, which is uh, the Autozavodsky district, the car factory district, uh, which was built uh, from the late 60s onwards in order to host uh, the workers of the new car factory uh, that was being built uh, on the site. So it was basically a company town. Uh, it's part of the broader city of Togliatti, but it is it looks like a settlement in itself. It's separated by a sort of forest belt from the two other districts that were built in the 1950s. Uh, so basically, Togliatti's districts belong to two different generations of planned cities. And we focused on this Brezhnev era late district, which is basically a motor town, a motor company town. Does Taliadi, you know, put it in a a wider context in terms of, you know, the company town isn't unique to Soviet space or, you know, continually be post-Soviet space. You you have the development of these throughout in various parts of the world. Is there something uh, specific about Taliadi that stands out from, you know, what one would imagine a company town or a company settlement to be? Uh, well, if you compare it to, to American or Western European company towns, certainly it's uh, the, the planning characteristics are uh, to a large extent different, but also the political and ideological implications were obviously different. Uh, in the sense that uh, the company town in the Soviet context represents uh, both uh, uh, industrial modernization of the country, it uh, it aimed at representing the uh, creation of a new socialist and communist society in the making. Um, It represents the social pact between the state and the citizens based on universal welfare, the right to work, the right to housing. Um, these in ideological terms, in, in planning terms, in urban planning terms, of course, the post-Salinist Soviet city is characterized by the lack of uh, private interests, of uh, lack of the profit logic and I might say full power to the planner basically. So it's not shaped by private interests at all. Uh, and this distinguishes it even from cities in uh, in the most uh, egalitarian countries of the Western Bloc, say all of Palma, Sweden, 
so I mean, in in the Soviet Union, it was all on on a much larger scale and much more interconnected in terms of infrastructure and urban welfare. Yeah, I, that's that's one of the things. Um, you know, the little I know about particularly post World War II uh, urban planning in the Soviet Union um, is is how centralized and interconnected it is. I mean, in terms of like the services provided by two two households, so you know, heat, electricity, water, uh, the 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 green the use of green space and the organization of green space. Can you can you talk a little bit more about how the city is planned vis-a-vis the people that live in it and work in it? Well, uh, it's uh, planned through modular units. I mean, the Artosavodsky district consists basically of residential micro districts, uh, which are made of uh, residential blocks, uh, including a large amount of green space, uh, uh, playgrounds, at least in theory, sort of educational, sometimes cultural services and so on. And of course, uh, uh, residential housing made of prefabricated panels. This is heavily standardized, although, of course, during the decades, I mean, from the mid 50s till the collapse of the Soviet Union, things changed a bit in terms of availability of living space, the quality of materials. And even in the very end, even architectural ambitions, because some uh, vernacular elements were introduced and some country specific, uh, specific elements were introduced and so on. But still, we are talking about an heavily standardized environment with a hierarchical distribution of services or any kind from the city to the block, the quartal level. Um, so uh, when this uh, new form of planning was introduced uh, after the death of Stalin and in the beginning of the Khrushchev Tho period, uh, it certainly was meant to address the dramatic housing shortage that existed in the Soviet Union, but it was also aimed at reducing uh, social spatial segregation and at uh, shaping the society as well, in a way. I mean, this was an ambition of the first uh, uh, architects and planners in the early years of the Soviet Union. And we might say that after the Stalinist years, where these kind of issues were put aside, uh, during the thought, these ambitions came back to to life in a way, although in a complex way, uh, partial way, we might say. So uh, basically, the planned socialist city had sort of interconnected infrastructure uh, ranging from the transport system to the to various house utilities, to residential housing, public and green spaces. Uh, recreational cultural buildings and so on. So Togliatti basically consists of these residential micro districts uh, separated by large boulevards that were meant for motorized transport, uh, large parks and squares, and uh, very large public buildings from houses of cultures to theaters, most of which are still public and still 
preserve the original function nowadays. When you were in, in Taliadi, uh, you know, doing the research for this project and taking the photographs, did you have any opportunities to have conversations with some of its residents to get a sense of their relationship to the, the urban space, say either today or their relationship in the Soviet period? I'd say so, yes. Uh, that was not systematic, so I could not write a paper on the basis of these conversations, but I have some, yeah, some impressions about this. Uh, I mean, I can definitely say that it seems impossible to ignore the, the Soviet uh, heritage in the city, actually. I mean, it is basically embodied in the, in the social spatial environment, even I don't know, perhaps younger people who don't reflect every day about this heritage, they are anyway influenced by the way in which space is organized. I mean, in, even in the in the sense of where social interaction takes place, um, various habits, uh, uh, behavioral habits and so on. And I also noticed, I may, of course, I'm also oversimplifying here, uh, a certain sense of place attachment, which doesn't mean that quality of life is there, there is so much life satisfaction. Probably, I mean, I think this is heavily dependent on the uh, also on the um, on the age group. But there is a, a sense of a place attachment and common identity uh, based on uh, on the factory, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, because people, basic, I mean, the, the city did not exist a few, uh, a few decades ago. So, yeah, I mean, grandparents, parents moved there. Yeah, so that's part of the common experience. I was surprised when I was reading and even looking through a lot of the photos is is the absence of people. I mean, there are people in some of the photos, but there are a lot of them that are just buildings and other types of landscapes. And and in the introduction. Um, people are, are often referred to as erased or lifeless. Can you talk about that issue of, of the place of people in the photographs, but also this issue of erasure and lifelessness? Uh, well, these, uh, this connects to what I was uh, uh, saying in the beginning. Uh, modernist architecture and planning, not only in the Soviet Union, had social ambitions. So architecture had, uh, was meant to have a social function. Uh, I don't know how intuitive this is, but um, it's a bit, uh, for some people, it's, it's difficult to understand this, in my opinion. And I think that uh, it's, very, it's even more difficult to understand this when you don't show the actual social function of buildings and, and places. I mean, it's easy to represent uh, a, uh, a late Soviet public building of a sort of uh, extravagant alien artifact when you don't show actually the function that it fulfills or fulfilled. Uh, this is what I mean. Um, also, it's important to show that, that, well, people actually use these spaces. They are not all dilapidated or abandoned. That's what I mean. Okay, there is degradation, and I think we did not shy from uh, representing, uh, with, with showing degradation in, in the city uh, in the sense of lack of maintenance or insufficient maintenance. 
but uh, these spaces are actually used by actual people. When you look around these these posts, a lot of the big post-Soviet cities, um, you see a lot of renovation going on. I mean, very concentrated, of course, in Moscow for many reasons. But there's lots of renovation. You have you do have the development of gentrification. Um, how in what ways are those are those processes also affecting um, Tolyadi's like social space and reconfiguring that space to a different? Uh, you know, economic model in many respects? Uh, not really, not really. This is a difference between Togliatti and uh, post-Soviet cities which have a more traditional structure with a traditional city center. I mean, first of all, Togliatti still relies on this uh, secondary sector economy, on the industrial economy. Uh, so basically, um, it doesn't have um, a city center where services are concentrated. I mean, I'm talking about Avtosavodsky district because I'm regarding this as basically a settlement. Yeah. Uh, so um, it, it has an isotopic structure. Uh, you cannot really. Um, it seems basically basically in, impossible to create the conditions both because of the morphological structure and because of the economic structure that could lead to actual gentrification. There, is, uh, uh, there are new infields in, in residential uh, uh, neighborhoods, in micro-districts, so on the outskirts of town. Uh, I know that in the 1990s, uh, some sort of suburbanization started when, well, um, richer people, managers started to uh, to move to the to the forest belt uh, to build detached houses there, and there are some sort of resort hotels over there. But I mean, the scale of the transformation is very modest when compared to to Moscow or other large uh, Russian post-Soviet cities. Definitely, uh, the only the only major city in the post-Soviet space that has some similar characteristics in this regard, although of course it's it's not it's not fully similar is Minsk probably, which has still a strong uh, uh, industrial economy. Uh, okay, it has a Stalinist city center and a reconstructed historical city center, uh, but still uh, there is not so much uh, price gradient between the center and the micro districts in terms of housing prices. And so on. I mean, Togliatti is even more, more extreme because it's really an isotropic town. I, I mean, the center is the factory, probably. I mean, it's the distance from the factory that represents the <laughs> potential gradient. This is one of the things I also understand about these um, post-war Soviet urban planned cities is that the 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 factory if it's a company town like Togliatti, the factory is the nerve center of the community in, in the sense that a lot of the services come emanate from the factory. Uh, is that still the case? Let's say that uh, the, um, the, the all the recreational public buildings, I mean, uh, cultural buildings are in public hands at the moment, except for, for one, which is a former uh, movie theater and uh, uh, on the other hand I would say that the company is still involved in provision of 
of services and uh, cultural initiatives and, and so on to the city. It certainly still plays a prominent role, although, of course, by now, the relationship between the, the company and the state are completely different. The major shareholder is Renault. So it's a different kind of role, I will say, but it's still prominent. Uh, I'd say I'd say the company is the major, the most powerful actor in in the in the city by far. Taliani was designed for the most part. The, the main urban planner in its in its design was Boris uh, Rabenenka. Can can you t- who was he and can you tell me talk about what his vision was? Not sure. I can elaborate upon his actual vision. I can say that Rubanenko was in his 50s when he was assigned this, this role uh, and uh, intellectually lived through uh, different trends uh, in, uh, in architecture and planning in Soviet history uh, because he, he studied in the, in the late 1920s, uh, so in the period when uh, constructivist uh, avant-garde was dominant. Uh, he graduated in the early 30s. This means that he started working as a professional when the architectural uh, style was already in transition from constructivism to Stalinist neoclassicism. Uh, so he had some, uh, 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 he did some work uh, in uh, in the in post-constructivist style, and then he was a neoclassical architect till the 1950s, definitely. Uh, he has done uh, important work in several major cities of the Soviet Union, from then Leningrad to, to Minsk, to Almaty. Uh, but uh, uh, biographies say that he was, I mean, uh, when he started in his education years, he was an enthusiast of constructivist uh, avant-garde. So he probably adapted to the neoclassical style but my impression is that when uh, Khrushchev denounced the excesses of Stalinist neoclassicism and moved back to modernism, well, I think this uh, Rubanenko probably approved of it. So um, in the late 50s, early 60s, he worked in the development of mass housing uh, residential districts in Moscow. For instance, from Tropariova to Novicheria Mushki, as far as I know. And so, yeah, I mean, he had experience also in this, uh, in this domain when he was assigned uh, this, um, uh, this role of planning uh, Artozavodsky district and then the future Toliatti. Um, he was also head of an institute of experimental planning associated with the Gastroi, with the State Committee for Construction, uh, institute, a research institute for, yeah, for planning. Uh, and uh, clearly, clearly when planning the district, it was influenced by contemporary modernist experiences outside the Eastern Bloc, uh, from Le Corbusier to Niemeyer. Uh, so his inspiration was definitely international, although, of course, this international inspiration was adapted to the uh, ideological uh, economic goals uh, and uh, the, the planning logic overall of the Soviet Union. What is the, the post-Soviet fate of Taliadi and, and other cities like it? 
what what do you imagine its its future to be extremely uncertain extremely uncertain i think uh, few authors have worked on this uh, like uh, for instance stephen crowley uh, and yeah i think uh, the I think they agree that the future is uncertain because uh, clearly these monotowns are uh, rely very much on state subsidies, um, which represent an important part of the current social contract between the Russian state and and the citizens. Yes, so some of these places are in uh, um, in profit terms uh, unproductive. Uh, Toliat is not among the worst because the plant is, I mean, this industrial infrastructure is rather attractive. Uh, in order to make it profitable, uh, some 10 years ago, a mass massive uh, resizing of the workforce has been carried out, which has likely increased significantly unemployment in the town. So it's not without, I mean, there are plenty of problems. Uh, but uh, there are other monotowns that are in even worse conditions in the sense that the uh, industrial infrastructure is more obsolete. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I mean, I understand the logic of those people who say, well, you could subsidize people and not places and uh, let people move somewhere else. But I don't think that uh, the complete abandonment of a city like that will sound very well, will resound very well with the Russian population. I mean, leaving a town to which there is place attachment is, is not really a nice thing. And in many respects too, like, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and the, the United States industrial towns are all, I think, in a similar situation. And the the question is 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 always about how do you how do you revitalize them, especially after I mean here in Pittsburgh, that the population just collapsed in the nineteen eighties and nineties as as the steel industry collapsed. Um, but do you? I I guess my my thing my comment is is that I don't necessarily see Taliadi as as exceptional. Uh, in, in when we look across, say, you know, the so-called first world and, the, uh, you know, more and more of a post-industrial society. Certainly, certainly. And uh, that's uh, another way to counter, uh, let's say, this form of this, um, uh, this form of Orientalism by saying that, well, these Soviet model towns do not make sense. Yeah, I mean, they are for this towns that are the product of the uh, of a certain historical period but you can find similar characteristics also in uh, uh, in the in the United States in western Europe I mean of course um, the Soviet the Soviet uh, planning system was more much more rigid and the planning the urban planning was rigid as well uh, so I mean there are there are specificities. But I think the difficulties of a Fordist town in the Soviet Union can be to a largest extent compared to the difficulties of a Fordist town in another part of the world. Uh, Amelia? Yeah, um, I just wanted to circle back. You said um, earlier in the interview that this is the first chapter in kind of a broader project that you'll be working on. 
And I'm kind of wondering, what does the future of this project look like? Well, uh, we have the intention to focus on uh, Soviet cities of, of a different kind, where which have a less linear planning history, uh, perhaps more significant uh, transformations happen after 1991, uh, more influx of private investment, uh, renovation, privatization, and, uh, and so on. This on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, one uh, issue that you would like to explore in the next chapter, uh, we did not choose the locations yet, but uh, it will be uh, a stronger reflection on the manipulative power of visual representation. So um, it will be good to deconstruct this visual representation in a more explicit way. Uh, we still have to, to figure out how, but that's an idea. Yeah. Well, this this leads to my, my last question is that you, you you know, mentioned repeatedly, and you've mentioned it here in our conversation, that the second world is seen as a distortion of a Western modernity, that it's somehow, you know, imposed from as like almost like an alien, you know, force. Um, and, and we often evaluate it, we don't evaluate it in its own terms. So what do you think we can learn from this Soviet urban space as an alternative project of modernity? What do we take from it today? I think what we can take is, uh, to a large extent, independent of the assessment that we can make. Uh, we can learn that uh, during the Cold War, I mean, the second part of the 20th century, uh, cities were planned according to a very different logic uh, from the logic that dominates today uh, in, in many parts of the world. and. The Soviet Union is probably the, the most extreme example, okay. because uh, because modernist planning, as I mentioned, in general, globally had a rather different logic than uh, than what we see nowadays. I mean, than the neoliberal uh, planning that we see that we see nowadays, uh, both in the Western world, in in Russia, and in other parts of the world. Uh, so. Um, I think this is, you know, there is a growing interest, uh, especially by younger generation, in uh, the actual practice of, uh, we might say, the non-capitalist world, uh, in order to understand what what can be learned, what was possible to do there that is not possible to do here nowadays, and so on. Uh, this, I think, is an important reflection regardless of the assessment that that one can make. So uh, I, we were not trying to make a, an actual political point, but I expect that this kind of reflection could be valuable for people who are interested in alternatives, I mean, political alternatives. That was Guido Secchi. Guido Secchi is a researcher and lecturer at the Department of Human Geography at the University of Latvia. The focus of his research is on post-socialist urban and regional studies, and his new book is Toliadi, Exploring Post-Soviet Spaces. This book is co-authored with Michel Chera, and it's published by the Velvet Cell and VAC Foundation. 
So, Amy, we just heard a really interesting interview with, with Guido Secchi on the, the space of Taliadi and this photo book that he's published with uh, Michelle Chera. So what, what are some thoughts that you, uh, you got from it? Well, I really liked hearing you all talk about um, planned cities uh, and just how that exists. I'm really reminded of other planned cities that we can think of. Brasilia is notable. Washington, D.C. is another notable planned city. Um, and, you know, obviously all cities have certain problems, but, but planned cities, they seem to try to solve some of the normal problems of organic growth cities, uh, but they all kind of seem to forget something or miss something or overlook something. There's always something that comes up that's just a little bit, it doesn't work quite right. Yeah. One of the things that I, that, you know, a couple of things that stuck with me that, uh, that Guido talked about is one how the Soviet planned city of Taliadi, or you can think of others that were constructed mid-century, um, how their spatial organization is is in line with the particular economic model. So, for example, you know, American cities, and I could even reference the the redevelopment and gentrification going on in my neighborhood, East Liberty. It's organized around a commercials a commercial um, logic. In the sense that it's trying, it's organized in a way to increase the the amount of commercial activity, and one of the things that struck me about Taliadi is that it's organized around a different principle of providing. I don't know how to put it, but a certain stable. I, I should say there's a certain humanism be uh, involved in its organization in the sense of like not only making ordered space but allocating green space. Uh, making the factory the nerve center, uh, providing so certain places of culture as one of the the things that the Soviet city is supposed to provide its residents. And, and that difference really struck me. I know here in the West, as you said, we kind of see this very focus on uh, commercialization of spaces and how can we best focus on um, on creating ease of customer potential buyer movement through the space. And I kind of think a lot about how shopping malls are kind of this uh, microcosm for the way planned cities operate in the U.S. And that it really, you know, it's not quite the same as you said. Um, and I think one of the quotes from the interview was talking about how with Toyati, the factory was the nerve center of the city. So it really was all about that kind of uh, work ethic and uh, incorporating the work ethic along with like the humanitarian aspects into the city. And another thing that struck me is because when I asked him, is you know, Toliati undergoing some kind of gentrification? And he said, not really. Um, and I was also struck by that because the other trend, especially now in urban redevelopment, it seems to me as a non-expert in urban redevelopment in the United States, is it's really about property value. Right. It's a, it's trying to. And, and that's something that's going on here in my neighborhood as well is like, how do they increase property value? And a lot of that means bringing in more investment and making it difficult for lower income people to live here. Yeah. No, I lived in a city in um, in Connecticut that is very much a Rust Belt city that really does not have any gentrification happening. And it has not seen any kind of resurgence in life at all. And, um, and people are still moving away. It's just continually shrinking. I think it used to be a hundred thousand people. It's under 10,000 now. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a big shrinkage. And so it was kind of interesting whenever y'all were talking about Toyati, I was seeing a lot of comparisons. It was, uh, it was the city where Stanley, um, the Stanley power tools company is based. And actually I think they're still based there technically, although obviously most of their manufacturing is now overseas, but those buildings, they just, they haven't been repurposed and, um, and they're just kind of a blight on the city. They're just sitting there, but there was not nearly so much uh, humanitarian development. And I don't think it was actually a planned city. So you've been listening to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Amy Parler. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please help support it by sharing on Facebook and Twitter and various other social media that you might be involved in. Join the SRB table of ranks by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the SRB podcast and uh, hit that Patreon button. As always, I want to thank all of my supporters and listeners for keeping this podcast alive. And until next week, bye.